You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, this morning we talked to Lori Kahikina, who was taken on the challenge of completing the final leg of the rail project. The Dillingham Corridor through the core of urban Honolulu is tricky because it has to take into account critical power, water, sewer, and communication lines. The most recent Federal Recovery Act provided an additional $70 million to help us with rail costs. However, just this week, Hart and the mayor sent a letter urging support for additional federal funding to help us complete our most expensive public works project. The ask is for $800 million, and that's a big gap between $70 million and $800 million. It's a long shot, according to Kahikina. Yes. That's absolutely correct. So as we've been pretty public, our funding gap with our new estimate at completion to include about a billion dollars in financing is about $12.4 billion. And with the estimated GETTAT um, projections and, of course, the remaining $740 million from the FTA, that's where we get that $3.5 billion uh, funding gap. So we're trying every which way that we can, and, and Senator Schatz and the rest of the delegation have been so, so wonderful and supportive, but we get it. We can't just sit back and say, give us more money. We need more money. So we're trying every which way. We did ask for the 800 but like I said, I, it's a long shot. Well, where are we at with the defects? Oh, on the, the um, crossings? Yes. There are several issues with the crossings. The biggest one the biggest one is the wheel rail interface. So in our contract documents, the contractor was able to choose between two different wheel profiles. The smaller one they chose, but our contract language is pretty specific that you can choose whichever profile you want, but you're still responsible for the interface between the wheels and the rails. We are in talks with Hitachi right now between Hart and Hitachi, so we, we need to come to a resolution on that. The other thing is the, the cracking. So when the manufacturing process, the sandblasting, you, you won't be able to see any defects. And it's superficial. We've talked to the manufacturer. They've, they've um, assessed the situation, and you won't see it unless a load is on the rail and there's some flaking off of the material. So they said the easiest way to fix it is to grind it down and then re-weld it on top. So that's a simple fix. The other one is the switch plates. The rail goes back and forth over these switch plates and that metal plate that is on there, the welding that was done was not really good quality work. So we've gone back to the manufacturer. It wasn't our contractor that was doing the installation. It was the manufacturer that Hart purchased from and they're saying it was due to O&M issues. That's why the welds broke off. Well, I think the taxpayers just want to know, are we going to be stuck with this? Going back to the original one with the wheel-rail interface, in my opinion, I could be wrong, but I'm holding strong that this is a Hitachi issue. Of course, they're pushing back pretty hard because this is quite a bit of money and time that's involved if the crossings need to be replaced. Of course, Hitachi is going to push back and Hart is going to push back. The switch plates, I'm pretty sure Hart is going to have to be responsible for that cost. And regarding the flaking, yes, we're going to be responsible for that cost as well. When will we know how much more that will add? Our preliminary estimates for the switch plates was about 160000 total. And then the flaking off of the material, that's 20000 And where are we at with uh, Dillingham right now? Because you put the pause on it. 
Yes, so on the Dillingham, we are going to do what we call the Malka shift. So instead of coming down the center of Dillingham, we're going to move the columns to the sidewalk on Dillingham. So we're hoping that'll save some costs so we won't have to relocate many of the utilities and we won't have to underground the Mackay side 138 KV line of HECO. So those designs need to be done. Our consultant is working on that and they're projecting the summer of next year. But the rest of the utility relocation from Ivalay to Ala Moana, our designers should be done 100% by May. And then we'll work with the city to get the permits. And then we'd like to have a procurement out on the street before the end of the year. That's just for the utility relocations from Ivalay to Ala Moana. That's power, water, and Everything, sewer? Yes, on the ground, the, the sewers, the storm drains, um, AT&T lines. Is there anything that worries you, <laughs> just yeah. knowing what you know on the city <laughs> side about Dillingham? Absolutely. There's no room there. There's absolutely no room. Yes, you're right. ENV has its own project right there on White Camilo, and it's a nightmare under there. So to have to underground two 138 KV lines plus move the utilities out of the way for the columns, the column itself is eight foot in diameter, and then they give themselves a five foot clearance all the way around. So that's 18 feet. There's no, there's no room. No wiggle room. There's no room in Dillingham. So that's why we're thinking the Malka shift might help us out over there. People are also concerned about this federal probe. Oh, uh, yeah. They have subpoenaed a number of documents, you know, contracts. Yeah. I think they were looking at the acquisition of, of property along the rail route. What can you share with us? Is there are any, any new subpoenas on the table? No, as far as I know, there's no updates. Or even our attorney, I asked him as soon as I got in, I said, okay, what is the status of that? And he says, there's been no real update. We're kind of in limbo right now. They haven't asked for additional information on their initial investigation. From the outside looking in, I just know that you've had an incredible turnover. A lot of the folks that were involved in negotiating those contracts aren't there anymore. And, you know, if they're subpoenaed, I guess we'll find out in, in due time. But since you came in, you have cut positions. You've cut yes. staff. And some sure. people might worry about that because, you know, one, I think there's a union challenge about whether that was done appropriately. But then also there are people that had institutional memory and we have a board that doesn't have that. That's fair enough. We did do a substantial cut. So when I first came in, I asked the managers, we need to tighten our belt here. We're at a lull right now. While the designs are ongoing, the only construction going on is in the airport segment. Is it right to have all of the staff here on board that we're not going to be working? So I did ask the managers, please give me feedback. And the all of the cuts were based on feedback from the managers. We have to expand and contract as the work dictates. Regarding the union grievance, all of our employees are personal services contracts. In the contract, the employee signs that either the employer or the employee can terminate this contract with 15 days notice. So I understand HGA filed agreements, and of course they had to update it with the, the last round of releases. So we did respond. We did get um, assistance from the city side Department of Human Resources, and we'll just have to go through the process, the whole grievance process with them. 
And getting back to the money that we need to complete this project, because it's gone from, you know, what, $5 billion to $12.4 billion, right. do you think that we're going to need to go to the legislature and ask them to uh, continue on with the excise tax? I want to make clear now that this new estimate at completion, it just it didn't balloon overnight since I started in January. We just wanted to be as open and transparent as we possibly could. It is conservative. Even the FTA's oversight consultant feels it's conservative. I said, that's okay, though. I'd rather be conservative and, and, and tell the public, the stakeholders, that this is what our estimate is, and hopefully we can come in sooner than the 2031 projected date and the $12.4 billion. One billion of that, as I mentioned, is for finance costs. But to answer your question of if we have we have to go to the state to extend the GETTAT, I yes we're going to have to. Um, but now is not the time. The financial situation of everyone is not good. Um, I don't think even next year would be a good time because everyone is up for re-election. So we probably won't even um, ask. We did talk to the House Speaker and Senate President and and made that clear that. We, we know we need to prove ourselves, not just to them, but all of the stakeholders, whether it's the FTA, the public, state legislature, the city council, our board members. So we have our homework that we have to do first. We have been hearing from Lori Kaikina, interim executive director of HART. She says unless uh, told otherwise by the HART board, she's focused on completing the rail route to Ala Moana Shopping Center. Kaikita says she is told that the Middle Street option would not help buses coming from East Honolulu and would not help the congestion from the west side or through the Dillingham area. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to address the impacts of COVID-19 by increasing local food supply, investing in youth with scholarships, and helping to support the needs of the most vulnerable island residents. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. You know, you may not know enough about the Hawaii Music Teachers Association. Those educators help nurture the souls of our keiki in our wonderful world of music. Well, we can share with you news of a new offering, but not just for teachers, but for students. It's free for students. This weekend, in the spirit of a Kanakapila Jam, organizers are offering a live workshop with Raiatea Helm and Aaron Mahi. It's part of a Hawaiian Heritage Music Series. Here's Dwayne Padilla. He's a musician of many talents who we've featured here at HPR before as part of the Mono Music Quartet. Uh, He is a sovereign strings violinist and as a fiddler for Hot Club of Hulaville. He's also an organizer of the series. The idea behind this new series of ours, nationally in string education, traditionally in schools and in private lessons, the focus has been on teaching kids about Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. But nationally, there's a movement uh, to try to reach beyond the Western classical canon and explore other, the musics of other cultures and other worlds. And so we figured that we wanted to, we as the Hawaii Music Teachers Association, we wanted to start to do that too. And we thought a good place, uh, place to start would be with our our local Hawaiian music and try to reach into that direction first. 
And so that, that's why we ended up starting this festival. And then we just reached out to uh, Riotea to help us uh, jumpstart this new, uh, brand new idea for us. So what did you think, Riotea, when they when he made the ask? Oh, I was I was for it right as uh, as soon as they um, asked me. I was like, yes, a great idea. And we all know that we're in a different uh, time, and everyone's well, majority of everyone's using you know the the, the uh, virtual platform. And I. I think this is probably the first time I'll be a part of something like this. So I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And, you know, it will be a great opportunity to exchange ideas and thoughts, you know, given that most of these students are classically trained and they focus on Western classical music, which is wonderful. And, uh, you know, we have the, the beautiful thing about music is that we can learn and we can share uh, from each other and the exciting part of it is that you never know what you're going to get. It's always fun. And if they're used to playing Bach and Beethoven, right? Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, y- y- what you do with Hawaiian music and you've had mentors, you just ate it up. You found your passion early. Yeah, you know, I, I was very fortunate. You know, I've uh, been in the, the music scene for 20 years. You know, it was recently where I decided to go back to school and uh, I'm finishing up at at UH Manoa, and I learned, you know, the music of Bach, Beethoven, and all the greats, and, you know, learning all the different timelines of uh, Western European music, and, you know, I, I, I can really appreciate, you know, what classical musicians, you know, what they've been through. Music is an amazing tool to have, and uh, it's always nice to kind of go back but having the the understanding of Western music now, I try to bring that to the situation where I'm in with Hawaiian music, and knowing that a lot of our kupuna, especially our you know, our ali'i, our mo'i, like Nalani uh, Eha, Queen, Queen Ili'o Kalani Kalakoa, Leleohoku, and Like Like, that that's the music they were um, listening to, classical music, and with a uh, you know string instruments. So it's kind of yeah, it's kind of interesting to kind of go back. They were composers, you know, in their own right, and their music is played today. So that's really neat. That spirit just continues. And, Duane, you asked Aaron Mahi to be a part of this workshop with Riotea. Oh, yeah, because part of our vision for this, we wanted to create a kind of a different experience for our HMC members, teachers, and students. Like, usually our other other, uh, events, like we have a competition where students prepare stuff and they play for judges. Or we'll have concerts where the students will practice and they'll prepare a concert for an audience. This one, we wanted to recreate more of like the old-style kind of Kapila jam session where just a bunch of the, the more experienced and veteran musicians will gather around <laughs> gather around the table with younger musicians and just talk story and play songs and just kind of learn in a, in a more informal format. And so to add to the talk story format, we wanted to, to bring a storyteller along. And who's a better storyteller about Hawaiian music in town than Aaron Mahi? He knows all the stories about everybody and the music and the people. So we think he could bring that element to this event of ours that we're trying to do. Do you think then this will be the first of several with this genre? Yeah, yeah. So this is the first. We're hoping to do it, uh, expand this series to be a three or four sessions a year of this Kanakapila jam session where we could just all get together and and just uh, explore and enjoy Hawaiian music together in a format that's not as formalized as our competitions and concerts, just more of a share music together for music's sake kind of a thing. And Raitea, you know, because now you 
come to this workshop, you know, as a student and as a accomplished <laughs> performer. I mean, I know when I was uh, taking music lessons, I had the hardest reading music because I think I'm dyslexic. And so it was just very hard to focus. And so I learned by just listening. I learned by, by you know, by learning music by just listening with your ears. Yes. And, you know, this, this would be a great opportunity to, you know, expose the students in a different uh, format to the way that I learned, you know, the way that most of us, us learned. It'll be exciting. I, I can't wait. <laughs> Dwayne, uh, uh, what are the particulars? What do people need to know then if they want to uh, sign up for this? Well, I think for for students, music lovers, and music teachers, the things to know is uh, that it's not like our other events. You don't need to come in with any pre, pre-knowledge about Hawaiian music or improvising, or you don't have to know any songs. It's just a, just come and be open-minded, and, and then we'll just <laughs> learn the music together orally as it was done in the generations previous. And it'll be different for a lot of the... Uh, I know I've been having a lot of questions from some of the other teachers on the MCNA board. So we're not going to have music. How are we going to learn the music? And if we're going to learn it by listening and by following uh, Riot and Aaron. It'll be, a, it'll be a very new experience for our classically trained audience. And I think it's an important way because... The, the majority of uh, music is learned how the Hawaiians learned it by ear orally. I think Western classical musicians are a very small percentage who rely heavily on written music. So I think it's an important skill, and it'll be fun for people to experience that with Raya and, uh, and Aaron. Okay, yeah. so they sh- they shouldn't be so straight-laced, I guess, right? They need to relax. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that happens. Happen. This is designed for people of all skill levels. So you don't have to be mm-hmm. a virtuoso. You can still be a beginner and, and enjoy the and enjoy the event also. Okay, and then what are you looking forward to most, Raiteo, with this session? Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to you know one being with Uncle Aaron Mahi. He is a wealth of knowledge, and you know when it comes to Hawaiian music, he shares the stories behind the songs uh, with such poise, you know, and and such love. Um, but, so it, you know, I I'm always honored and happy when when i get the opportunity to be with you know folks like him and you know just to cherish that moment and you know to to um really showcase you know how important it is to you know continue to um, involve our kupuna in in you know all things that we do and have building that bridge to the next generation so when uh, when Duane mentioned Uncle Aaron, I was like, "Yes, <laughs> I would. I I love it. You know, because I mean, you know, tomorrow's never promised. You know, we we have to we have to uh, make sure we spend as much time with uh, folks like Uncle Aaron, and um, you know, just just listen. You know, and and that's something that I that I really um, you know had developed at a young age was just listening, listening to my grandparents. I think this would be a really great opportunity for everyone who's going to tune in. Most of the students are you know, perhaps so used to a, a certain uh, way of learning, and this is this would be nice, you know, just you know, relax. We go with the flow and just, you know, enjoy and you know, be yourselves. That was Hawaiian singer Raya Tea Helm and musician Dwayne Padilla talking about an upcoming event for educators and students. For links to RSVP for the Saturday event, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Sweet and lovely, ke'o nao nao.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Joining us now for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light. She's got an update on the Kauai Police Chief's performance. He's been in the hot seat lately. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So what can you tell us? What's his status? So let me just refresh everyone's memory. Kauai Police Chief Todd Raybuck, he has been on the job since April 2019, and he... um, has been very, very well received by the public and and by the mayor, by county department heads, by his officers. Um, And then this March, it came out that the police commission uh, conducted an an investigation that found that he had uh, mocked people of Asian descent by squinting his eyes, bowing his head, and fabricating an Asian accent. Now, uh, Chief Raybuck has apologized for this behavior, and quite a few uh, folks in the county, including Mayor Derek Kawakami, have come to his defense saying, you know, this chief is doing an excellent job. We stand by him. But a review of the police chief's performance evaluations show that although he has received mostly glowing feedback from the police commission that hired him, his most recent review shows that commissioners, at least some com- commissioners, felt that his performance uh, needed improvement and that there were some areas of concern. Yeah, he came in as a kind of an outsider, right? He didn't exactly um, uh, rise through the ranks here locally. So some folks that thought that he was bringing, what, a new sense of respect for the police he, department. Exactly. He came from uh, the Las Vegas where he... Uh, worked for that police department, so a major metro area. And uh, he came here to Kauai. A lot of people thought he could be this breath of fresh air. And uh, at least initially, he he was, it seems. He, you know, the commissioners who reviewed his performance early on said he brought all this transparency and, and professionalism back to the job of Kauai's top cop. And you did some digging. You asked for some of his uh, performance evaluations uh, from the commission. Yes. So I wanted to take a look here because, you know, the mayor has said, yes, the police chief, you know, made these comments, you know, made these mocking gestures. You know, that's problematic. But his performance is so wonderful. And so I wanted to see exactly, you know, what the commission uh, that judges his performance has said. And, um, you know, at one point in one of his early reviews, one of the commissioners said that he was convinced that Chief Raybuck, Raybuck was bound for stardom. Um, so, so a lot of glowing feedback. But more recently, commissioners did come up with some areas of concern. Now, it's unclear exactly what many of these things are because in the copy that I received from the county, uh, many of these comments are blacked out. They're redacted. So 
this presumably negative feedback, we, we don't know exactly what it says, but that these things that are not blacked out uh, say that, you know, it, it's clear that the chief has uh, built bridges with the community and, and done a lot to, to build relationships there. But what about with his own officers? So there was some questioning of his uh, relationship building within his own department. And uh, were you able to uh, uh, find out, you know, what discipline, if any, um, the commission handed down? We still do not know uh, how the chief was disciplined. Uh, we're not even totally sure that he was disciplined, but the uh, police commission chair said that, um, you know, any discipline would be confidential. So whatever that may have been, we don't know. And the chief wouldn't say? And the chief didn't want to talk for this story. Okay. No. All right. Well, we know you'll you'll uh, keep asking. But thanks so much, Brittany. Take care. That was Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. Head to HonoluCivilBeat.org to read that story and more. Support for HPR comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. A year ago, we featured different neighborhood groups who started events to applaud the efforts of healthcare workers working on the front lines of the pandemic. Interest in some of the neighborhood shout-outs wane, but we recently featured the efforts of a community on Maui who gathered for a candlelight vigil on the anniversary of the health care crisis. Today, we're revisiting our producer, Savannah Harriman-Pote's conversation with two workers from Maui Memorial Health Center, Elizabeth Linares and Lemomi Melamai. Uh, they attended the ceremony, which began with the sounds of conch shells blowing 35 times, once for each life lost to COVID-19 on Maui. Liz Linares and Lemomi Melamai haven't gotten much rest in the past year. They both work at Maui Memorial Medical Center, and the pandemic turned their lives and the lives of their families upside down. This week's vigil offered them a rare moment to pause and reflect. We start with Liz. I, I did not expect this at all. I remember when I was hearing Dr. Fauci <clears throat> last year about, you know, at our worst, we're going to have 200,000 dead. I remember the day that we have a first case here in our hospital. And I remember the panic that went through the entire hospital. But I never in my life would have thought that I was still wearing a mask and that I am now fully vaccinating and still um, ordering people to quarantine a year later. The toll that it has taken on us has been incredibly hard, mm. especially for the nurses that are working on the floor. Being a COVID unit, the restriction on your outfit is so big. Your face hurts. You can't talk. You can't talk louder enough because you're already tired from talking when you have the N95s on. I will leave the hospital, wash my hands, get in my car. I will bleach the entire car inside, like the steering wheel, everything. Then I will go home. I will carry bleach wipes with me. 
I will take my shoes off and I will bleach my shoes. I ensure that I even change my style because I said I have to be able to wear shoes that I can bleach. So I bleach my shoes. Then I will go to the back. I will take all my clothes out over there and then I will jump in the bathroom. I had to go that extra mile. And to know that I have to do it again the next day was exhausting. Lemomi, I'd love to hear you speak to that, speak to some of what Liz talked about, about the, the culture that you've had to develop and the teamwork, but also, I'm sure, the physical exhaustion. So on, on that note, I, I agree with Liz. Uh, I wear a face mask in my own home. My family and I social distance from my relatives and friends. The COVID pandemic has affected our culture. You know, here in Hawaii, when we see our relatives and friends, we kiss and hug, we share food, we gather. We desire to lovingly embrace one another, but out of respect and knowing the only way to keep our loved ones safe, we restrain ourselves. Does this make me not want to care for COVID patients? No, of course not. You know, it's it's okay to have, um, you know, these uncertainties in my thoughts, and um, but recognizing the importance in setting these thoughts aside when I'm caring for COVID-positive patients and PYs and treating them as we would have, as I would have done unto my own family member. As a nurse, I'm, I know that I'm replacing that family member for that patient. Prior to this pandemic here on Maui, our patients were allowed to have at least one family member or friend at their bedside. But now whether you are COVID-positive or not, Visitors are not allowed. My uncle Kanilo Kamano recently said it perfectly when his brother, brother-in-law was hospitalized just last month. He said, hope is the best medicine and holding a loved one's hand administers that medicine. And that, that right there touched me. You know, my, my heart just aches because I know, I know that every nurse, you know, every every um medical staff member we we believe the same thing we we can we put ourselves in the patient's shoes i i treat every patient as if they're my own family members and i try to be that um hope for them now that there is the covid vaccine out i i hope these things go up from here even if it's just being able to allow be allowed to have one family member or friend with us at the hospital to administer that medication of hope. I just want to ask, if you don't mind, have either of you experienced a personal loss during the pandemic? I haven't. I have. And um, in Puerto Rico, I had what we call here a Hanai mother. She was very important to me. And um, my father was also sick, so I had to go to Puerto Rico and she passed away due to COVID. And it was really hard because I was dealing with the stress of my dad. And when um, we had our vigil and we were standing with the candles where Kimakeo was doing the honor for the victims that passed, I must say that that was the first time I was able to grieve for her. It was the first time I took a moment and started grieving for her. And I had a moment of shock that I don't know how I, how I kept it all together, how we 
as nurses, have this ability to care for our life, because that's our job, while um, keeping our emotions in check. And so that vigil gives me a pause to feel and experience her death and be mad at COVID. That was the first time. That was Maui Memorial Case Manager Liz Zanaris and Nurse Lemomi Melomai reflecting on the trials of the past year. They both participated in a candlelight vigil in Maui County this week, and Kahukimokeo Kapahulihua led the conch ceremony. wasn't the only community to mark the anniversary. Savannah also checked in with the neighborhood in Manoa. You're listening to a handful of neighbors who meet outside their houses every night at seven on the dot to cheer on healthcare workers fighting the pandemic. The voice you heard counting down was longtime resident of Manoa and retired nurse, Stephen Scott Hosaka. He started this tradition over a year ago. It just seems to help. <laughs> it's a funny thing, it's a very subtle, um, and it's only two minutes, but we look at each other afterwards and we smile and we're happy to see each other because that means we're, we're, we're all good for that day. and, and uh, then we say aloha, and then we meet up again 7 o'clock the next day. Now, Stephen, I understand that you're a retired nurse. How long were you working as a nurse? I was 40 years as a nurse. During my period as a nurse, we had uh, pandemics, but nothing like the COVID-19. So the age that I am now, I can't imagine being able to cope with that kind of pressure. I, I take my hats off. It's all frontline workers, just they're all just so brave to never have given up. You've been at it every night since March 12th. What would a normal day look like for you? What would you need in order to retire this practice? Oh, we're going to get to July 4th. That's what President Biden said, maybe a day to shoot for, to symbolize our independence from virus. And I think that's a good goal. But frankly, we'll probably continue afterwards because I don't want to forget the over half million people that have perished. It's just we can't do that. I can't do that. And it's too easy to forget. Humans are just, we have that tendency to forget. And I, I'm, refused, I'm refusing to forget. So I'll, I'll continue to do it. I don't think there's an end point. It's good for me. It's good for my spirit to go out and literally just spend two minutes clapping and whistling. <laughs> two minutes. Good to see you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. We just heard from Stephen Scott Hosaka of Manoa. He leads a nightly chorus of bells and claps to show support for healthcare workers. 
and you heard the full two minutes of bells and whistles in real time. We first aired this conversation in March, but Stephen and his neighbors are expected to be out there again tonight. Take a drive through Manoa to hear them live, or better yet, start your own chorus with your neighbors.